Well, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to this service, an hour at the cross on Good Friday. I haven't been into town, but I'm told by somebody on the way in that it's all hustle and bustle out there, but this is a quiet place for contemplation and reflection and prayer this afternoon on Good Friday. And many have pointed out that Good Friday seems like rather an odd name for the day in which we remember somebody's death especially the death of one so wonderful as the person who St. John has spent the last seven Sundays painting a portrait of for us. Um, We've said uh, the last several Sundays, if you've been with us, as we've been working through the seven signs of John's Gospel, that St. John's Gospel falls into two halves. The first half is the seven signs that we've been looking at, and the second half moves towards Jesus' death the upper room, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the events of Easter weekend. The New Testament uh, lectionary readings, which are set for today, um, actually are the whole of chapters 18 and 19 of John's Gospel. And I suppose I'm ashamed to say that I wasn't feeling quite brave enough for us to tackle uh, all uh, quite so much as two whole chapters. Uh, So instead, what we're going to do over the next uh, hour is to take three sections from those chapters as we meditate and reflect together on why it is that Christians have always believed that Jesus' death is good. Good news. Good news then, and good news for us today. And so in each um, of these three scenes, these three vignettes, uh, we're going to focus on an object which appears, uh, one of the props, if you like, if it were being acted out as a drama through the narrative, all beginning with C. Um, a cup, a crown, and a cross. And each one is symbolic of something which Jesus accomplished for us on Good Friday that makes it Good Friday. So for each scene, we're going to hear uh, the verses read, then we're going to reflect on the significance of those three uh, objects, those three props, and then we'll have space for silence and for prayer and to hear some music to help us in our worship. We're going to remain seated throughout, although if you care to move around or kneel at any point, then please feel free to do so. And after this, the service is going to flow through without any further introductions or announcements. So if you'd like to follow along, the readings are going to begin at John chapter 18, which you can find in the Pew Bibles on page 1086. 1086, John chapter 18. But before we go any further, let's begin in prayer. collect for Good Friday. Eternal God, in the cross of Jesus, we see the cost of our sin and the depth of your love. In humble hope and fear, may we place at his feet all that we have and all that we are. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Several years ago, I was involved in um, organising a youth group for teenagers in our church. And when I uh, first started helping with this youth group, I was told that there was an initiation test for new leaders, which involved a meal with the kids, during which a cup was passed around the table, and each member of the group 
contributed something nasty to the cup, which then had to be drunk by the leader. I'll spare you the precise details, but suffice to say, it was not a pleasant experience drinking that cup. Well, in verse 11, Jesus mentions the first of our three props, the cup. Shall I not drink the cup, Jesus says, that the Father has given me? And if it's not too uh, irreverent to say so, in some ways, perhaps that cup which Jesus was to drink was not altogether unlike the cup which the new leaders of this youth group were presented with. Uh, It actually had a nasty contribution from everybody. But instead of being made of silver or glass or plastic, Jesus' cup was a metaphorical one. And instead of bits of food and sachets of salt and pepper, it was filled with the sins of the whole world. No wonder Jesus was not excited about drinking it. Verse 1 says that Jesus was praying in the garden and we know from the other Gospels that his prayer in the garden consisted largely of a plea for his father to spare him the ordeal of having to drink the cup. Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, he prayed. Those familiar with the Old Testament knew exactly what cup Jesus was talking about. Uh, The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah spoke of the cup of the wine of God's wrath, immortalised in the title of John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath. And we have all contributed to that cup. Even those who think of themselves as, quote-unquote, good people. Peter was one of the closest friends of Jesus. He was the rock on which the church was built. He was the first pope, according to tradition. And yet even Peter does not come off well in these verses. There are many things that Peter must not have been especially proud of, which we read about in the Gospels. We wonder why they were included. They were so embarrassing for him. The time he tried walking on water but ran out of faith and started sinking. The time that Jesus said to him, get thee behind me, Satan, that must have stung a little. The time that he brought a sword along to defend the Prince of Peace and chopped off one of the servant's ear. I always wonder why John tells us his name in verse 10. Malchus. Why do we need to know that? Did Malchus go on to become... Uh, a member of the early church. We don't know. But nevertheless, Jesus had to command Peter in verse 11, put your sword away. But by far the most shameful, embarrassing thing which Peter did in the Gospels was his threefold denial of Jesus. Verse 17. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. I am not. He denied Jesus by his actions, and he now denied him by his words. He made 
his own contribution to the cup of the wine of God's wrath. As we all have contributed, we all have denied Jesus. In thought, in word, in deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. Three times Peter said, I am not, I am not, I am not. But three times Jesus said, I am. I am, verse 5. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he. Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I am the one who will drink the cup, the cup of the wine of God's wrath. Not God's wild, uncontrollable rage, but his righteous and settled personal hostility to all evil, injustice, unrighteousness, and sin. Jesus drank that cup. Jesus bore the wrath of God. On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied because Jesus drank the cup. He dealt with the problem of your sin and mine. So let's be still for a few moments and reflect quietly. Two questions to steer our thoughts and our private prayers. Are we honest about our own contributions to Jesus' cup? Do we recognise what we've put into it? The more honest we are, the more thankful we'll be that he drunk it for us. But secondly, have we actually allowed him to drink that cup for us? Have we allowed him to drain the dregs? Or are we still attempting to deal with some aspects of sin in our lives, carrying the burden and in the ill effects of our wrongdoings ourselves, our own sin, the sin of others? Well, perhaps in the quiet, let's hand Jesus the cup and allow him to drink it for us. first prop was the cup. The second is the crown. It's pretty extraordinary the number of times that Jesus is referred to as being a king in these chapters. Uh, the word king or kingdom comes 16 times, just across chapters 18 and 19. And it seems that it's actually the question of Whether or not Jesus is really a king, that is the reason why he's on trial in the first place. Look at chapter 18, verse 33. Pilate summons Jesus and asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest, but my kingdom is from another place. Ah, you are a king then, said Pilate. He presents him to the people. Verse 39, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And that's what he says in verse 14 of chapter 19. Here is your king, Pilate says to the Jews. And they say, no, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asks, we have no king but Caesar. Over the page in verse 19, Pilate puts the notice above the cross reading, 
Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And they say, no, 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 verse 21, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, I've written what I've written. Pilate was trying to find out what sort of king Jesus was. The Jewish leaders couldn't see it at all. Jesus looked pathetic. What sort of a king is born in a barn and rides a donkey? He was anything but a typical picture of a powerful and wealthy ruler. This is hardly Westminster Abbey and the gold state coach and the crown jewels and Buckingham Palace. This is a far cry from May the 6th. But they gave Jesus a crown, but not a proper crown, a crown of thorns, verse 2. Put it on his head, clothed him in a purple robe, went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. They had no idea. No idea that Jesus is in fact the king of kings. That his kingdom was not of this world, but that it would go on to reach down the centuries and across the globe so that here we are 2,000 years later, 2,000 miles away, claiming to be his loyal subjects, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're still here. Earthly kings come and go, don't they? We, we have no king but Caesar, they say in verse 15. Well, where's he? Caesar's reign came to an end. And this year, we'll be given a special holiday to celebrate the coronation of King Charles. Not next year, though. And yet, every year, we have a bank holiday to celebrate King Jesus' coronation. Today, is the real coronation bank holiday, isn't it? It happens every year in Australia, Bermuda, Brazil, Canada, Colombia, Ecuador, Finland, Germany, Hungary, Malta, Mexico, New Zealand, Norway, Peru, the Philippines, Portugal, Singapore, Spain, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, Venezuela, many other countries beside, every year have a bank holiday to celebrate the coronation of the King of Kings. Why is it Good Friday today? What happened on Good Friday to make us call it that? Well, for one, Jesus drained the cup to deal with our sin. But he also wore the crown to become our king. So let's be still again and reflect and pray quietly a few questions to guide our prayers. Have we bowed the knee and declared Jesus to be our king? Have we pledged allegiance to his kingly reign? Or do we need to climb down from his throne, which we have usurped, and take his crown off our heads? If we have done that, do we realise that if Jesus is our king, and that God is our Father, then that makes us members of the royal family. Some of us might be struggling with self-worth. 
Well, Paul writes to the Ephesian church that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Why is that? On a throne. Jesus has seated us on a throne next to him. Let's be still. cup and the crown are well-known symbols, but of course the most well-known symbol, the most successful logo in the history of iconography, more recognisable than the golden arches or the swoosh or the blue oval, is the cross of Christ. The cross became the symbol of Christianity. There were plenty of other possible options that it could have been. It could have been the crib to symbolise the incarnation or the boat that he preached from to symbolise his wonderful teaching. It could have been the towel that he washed the disciples' feet with to symbolise his humble service. It could have been an empty tomb to symbolise the resurrection or it could have been a a crown or a throne to symbolise his kingly rule or it could have been a dove or wind or the fire of the Holy Spirit. The church could have settled on any number of different symbols to capture the heart of the gospel. But on top of cathedrals and hanging around people's necks and pinned to people's lapels and tattooed on people's arms and built into the architecture of this building, which is cruciform, and hanging above me carved in wood is the cross of Christ. Verse 17 He carried his own cross and went to the place of the skull where they crucified him. You may have noticed that this church building isn't quite straight. Um, Lots of churches around here are like that, apparently, not because the architect got the calculations wrong. It seems to be deliberate. Nobody quite knows why. There are a few theories, but one is that because the building is in the shape of a cross, that this bit represents the bowed head of Jesus as he breathed his last. Verse 30, when he had received the the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head. It is finished. As he bowed his head, Jesus said what I think are three of the most precious words in all the Gospels. It is finished. Not the pained and confused cry of anguish from a man who never expected this to happen, but the contented declaration of satisfaction from a man who knew exactly what he had to do and who had now completed his task. It is finished. The words of a great painter as he lays down his brush after the last stroke or the homeowner after they've made the final mortgage payment or the marathon runner as she crosses the finish line. It is finished. 
It is finished, verse 28. Later, it says, knowing that everything had now been finished. And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. I need a drink after everything I've done. And when he'd received his drink, verse 30, Jesus said, it is finished. What had Jesus finished? On the cross. Why is it that the cross became the logo? What is it the logo of? Jesus finished the work of salvation. Peter, who was there, later explained what happened in his letter by saying that Christ died. Why did he die? He died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's why Jesus died. That's what Jesus finished, to bring us to God. We can't get ourselves to God. We can't climb the stairway to heaven. Despite our best efforts, God himself, in the person of his son, had to come down to get us. That's why Jesus came. He came to save us. That's what he finished as he breathed his last. And that's why the cross is such good news. The cry from the cross was not, it's nearly finished. Now it's up to you to get yourselves just that last little bit across the line. You need to earn my favour. Make sure you go to church and read your Bible and say your prayers and keep the Ten Commandments and do your recycling properly and help old ladies across the road. And if you do all of those things, then I'll love you. No. Jesus finished it for us. The cross is the sign that Jesus finished the work of salvation, that he has reconciled us to the Father and that he's brought us to God. The cross is the symbol of grace. Let's pray again and thank him for his finished work upon the cross.